Welcome everyone to another installment of the Evolution Exchange Gaming Podcast. Today we are talking about balancing speed and sustainable development in a gaming studio. Today I am joined by Per Malman, Technical Director at Nordlight, Edgar Delmiani, Studio Tech Lead at Mag Interactive, and Sina Tavakoli, Technical Lead at Rovio. Before we begin, everyone will have a quick introduction, and I will start with Per. Per, a bit about yourself. Right, so uh, I'm Per Malman, and t- like I said, Tech Director at Nordlight, a small uh, game studio in Sweden. Um, I've been in mobile games since 2002, uh, which is before it was a thing, really. We did uh, games for Nokia, uh, the N-Gage for one. Um, I've then done a bunch of different things in in mobile games, Uh, most recently 10 years at King in various positions. And since January, I'm at Nerdlight. Amazing. And Sina? Yeah. Uh, So I'm Sina Tavakoni, technical lead at Rovio. I've been here in this company for almost three and a half years now. Um, our department uh, here is focused mainly on designing and imp- implementing services and tools for game studios, namely the Beacon platform, which is developed throughout the years to address common challenges of uh, game development. We've been implementing solutions like uh, accounting, billing, analytics, live operations, and so on. Uh, now my team's mission is to be closer to game development processes so that we can we can detect the game development challenges first and uh, possibly recognize the areas that that we that we can detect and work on you know to be scalable that's why i've been also involved in develop, developing three angry birds titles directly so far and the angry birds Angry Birds 2, which I've joined hand for a while, developing new features and maintaining the game, but but also Angry Birds Reloaded and Angry Birds Classic, which I was technical lead in the pre-production phase and worked in both in concepting and also developing the game. Happy to be here. Amazing. And finally, Edgar. Hello. <laughs> um, yeah, um, I'm Edgar Damiani, uh, studio tech lead at Mag Interactive. Um, I've been working as a programmer for some time now, since 1998, and I started working with games in 2005, uh, mostly PC games, and then I, since then I, I did a bit of everything. <laughs> um, five years ago, I moved to Sweden to uh, work at King, and worked there for two years, and I moved to Funplus, and now, um, two years later, now I moved to Mag. Um, I... I think that during my my journey, I I felt the pain that all game developers feel, and uh, um, and my goal now uh, was okay. Uh, I want to help people to alleviate their their suffering somehow. So I think this is this is what I'm trying to do as a studio tech lead. Um, I recently uh, I managed to find a really good definition for this role. Um, and um, it's basically, um, I say that it's the three C's. So my work is to improve coordination, communication, and collaboration between game teams. And this is what I've been doing since I, I started at Mac. Amazing. Hi, everyone. This is Chris Bennett here, a Knowledge Managing Director here at Evolution. We're committed to doing recruitment in a different way that adds value to both our clients and candidates by providing you with amazing speakers and leading edge discussions on what's going on in the tech scene at the moment. There are three reasons why you should contact me. 
If you would like to speak on a future podcast, if you are interested in hiring awesome tech data, product or gaming freelancers for your business, or if you are looking for an exciting new organization to work with, please get in touch. Thank you so much for listening and I really hope to hear from you soon. Please enjoy the rest of the podcast. All very qualified to answer this question, so I'm quite excited. Uh, no, thank you all for coming and we'll get straight into it. So you all brought a question to ask the other guests on the topic of balancing speed and sustainable development. So I'll start with Per. Per, what is your question and the context behind it? Right. So my question is, in a world of pressure to deliver features fast, how do you create a cultural sustainable pace where developers feel comfortable improving the code and removing tech debt? And I'm asking this question because there's something I've noticed in teams where even though you try to communicate to developers that we want to be in this for the long run, to, to write code that's not just for this month, but next year, and hopefully if the game is a success, for the coming five years or something like that. Um, but still, developers might feel the stress and the pressure to cut corners and not invest properly in quality. They might not feel that they dare to take on the time to actually improve things, even though they can see that they're bad. So how do you foster a culture that promotes that so they feel confident in that role? Right. I want Edgar to start on this, please. Okay. Um, first, um, I, I know exactly what you mean. Um, first, uh, I think we need to foster a safe environment, but this is like a buzzword <laughs> if you think about it. So what is safe environment? Um, it's basically a place where we can truly um, be ourselves and and truly uh, unleash our potential, but it again it's easier said than done. Um, sometimes I, I think we we understand from the development perspective that it's needed, um, but at the same time we need to ensure that uh, management understands that, and then you you, you try to strike a balance there. Um, so once you strike this balance, then I think you can have true, uh, truly have uh, a safe environment. But again, there's all these buzzwords uh, and we talk about uh, uh, clear communication and transparency and on responsibility and, and all this stuff. But it's maybe it's a matter of moving beyond the words and trying to actually show by example, what they mean. Um, maybe this is something that um, in, in in the gaming industry. I mean, I work with so many good people in other places and here at Mag, and you can see that most of the time, people they are trying to do, uh, they're trying their best, but uh, without proper orientation, I would say, and it's hard to say, okay, we are getting in the right direction because you can be efficient. You can run like crazy, and then you realize that you're going running in the wrong direction, right? Um, so looking at, at, at a company as a whole, so a, a company has, I hope, uh, a vision and a mission, has its goals, has values, and all, all this stuff. Um, they should be the pillars of the company. Everything should be built on top of that, but then uh, they should be actually exercised as well. So start from there, make sure that um, we we all understand the goals. We know that uh, we need to deliver. We know that um, we have deadlines, um, we have pressure, and 
pressure isn't bad by itself. I would say the pressure is good. Um, but apart from that, um, we should never forget the human side of this equation. Uh, I was thinking about the Agile Manifest. And the, if you, historically speaking, if you think of the, the Manifest, they were actually trying to bring back uh, the human side of software engineering, right? Um, so it's so easy to forget the human side, just think that we need to deliver, but we are human beings. Um, we're not AI bots, even though now we have AI uh, <laughs> around us. Um, so the human side is really, really, really important here. Um, we should understand our limitations, but at the same time, if you have a safe environment, as I said, um, you can create this place where people can unleash their potential. And some, sometimes I don't see it. I see the opposite. Um, so it's important that management and production, uh, they work together and they're looking in the same direction. Otherwise, the, the, the game teams, they will never feel comfortable in, in doing certain things. Mm -hmm. What about you, Sino? thoughts on that yeah just like Kirtgaard said you know sometimes uh, talking about things is easier to just practicing them but there's no way around it but to just you know discuss about them uh, and you know at this in, uh, interior and see what that leads so I'll try to analyze the question this way that uh, when does the set practice not become a culture or what what people not follow uh you know, when do people, you know, do not follow, you know, a certain way? Uh, well, it can have many answers, right? But uh, let's eliminate possibilities like when, when people just do not like each other or things like that. Let's assume everyone is um, benevolent because otherwise you probably need to work on many other things outside the scope of this discussion. Let's just assume everyone is in, uh, in the team, our professionals and respectful. Um, well, to me, it seems that in order to uh, to be comfortable following a certain way, you should you should be able to relate to that basic, right? Um, if I find something convincing and aligned to what I value, then I would understand why it needs to be done, right? Otherwise, it will become just a hassle yeah, that I should do every time. Um, so I think. This is the key to the problem. Like as a leader, I, I think it is essential to convince your team, team members in a respectful way, of course, the, about what you are proposing. Um, but let's not forget that it should be a two-way street also. Like you, you also need to back down if you cannot find convincing arguments. You need to be able to answer critics and defend your solutions, but also be prepared to change your mind as well. Uh, then I think these discussions can contribute to what you are trying to achieve as a team. Um, there's also one thing that a leader should do, like Edgar said, like for sure, uh, you, you need to have a atmosphere which is healthy for, for everyone to discuss. Uh, like, like are individuals in your team able to express their opinions freely or are the discussions becoming too personal? Like nobody likes to be on the wrong side. Uh, nobody likes to be you know, wrong, basically, but uh, but the atmosphere should be safe enough for people to be wrong, uh, because that contributes a lot to finding the best approach. Now, back to this uh, question, uh, how how do you create a 
technical depth uh, removing culture in a fast-paced world, I would I would apply the same principles here as well. Like, do we have convincing arguments why it needs to be done? Well, we all know that practicing such things generally is a good idea, right? But uh, as we do not normally have a one-size-fits-all solution for problems, can we convince all all the team members that it is a good idea to to have that in in our current project, basically? Uh, and besides that, do we do do people find it safe to express their uh, thoughts? If these are addresses addressed, I believe uh, then we will develop a good culture fitting the thing. Mm. No, it seems like like Edgar mentioned, like you need that alignment or management and gaming team. And then the you know you spoke about like the culture side, you have to have that sound. And also, um, I liked what you said when you talk about like there needs to be quite a lot of conviction in the value, I guess, and in the context here of improving the code and tech debt. Because if you're not praised for it, then that might be the only value there is. Um, it's just one of those where you need to be quite, I guess, strong on that. Uh, yeah, over to you, Edgar, before we go back to Per. Yeah, just one thing that uh, I wanted to add. Um, usually we, we compare what we are doing with uh, fixing a car while the car is running, right? Um, so this is our reality. There's no way of, of moving away from that. So um, sometimes we, we um, as uh, Sina mentioned, um, we should have a, a good reason. We should be able to convince people that we need to do certain things. But at the same time, not only what, but how. Um, sometimes you have a really good argument, but then people say, okay, how long will it take? Oh, three months. Oh, no. <laughs> Sorry. Um, so the, again, uh, the, 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 the key here is balance. Uh, is there a way of, okay, the, the whole thing takes three months. Can we break it down to smaller pieces and then can we sell it in, in, in smaller uh, uh, chunks and say, oh, okay, this is more sustainable. Then we can do this, uh, a bit of this, this spring, the next spring we can do that and so on, so on, so on. And then uh, six months later, you have something that is way better. Um, so again, this is important um, and it, it boils down to... Uh, management and development production uh, talking to each other um, because of course uh, management will never say well yes yeah, stop the car and do what, what you need to do it, it's not going to happen um, and production needs to understand that as well then the, the car will not stop so we need to do what we can uh, with the, 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 the resources that we can and of course and, and as we been discussing this um, the safe environment here is important you, you should be you should feel that you can express yourself and then you can bring ideas to the table and then that someone is actually listening to them. Otherwise, you have really great ideas and bring in the, and you realize that no one's listening to that. And at some point, you, you will give up. And I've seen it happening in, in, in a few places that um, people, they want change, but they try once, twice, then the third time they say, well, no, I'm, I'm not going to do it again. No one is listening. My thoughts on that, Per, I'm thinking, like, practically, what do we do here? Hmm. I think they're really good points in that you need to be able to, to sell. You have you need to have good arguments, both towards management, uh, uh, towards the, the team as well. Uh, but I think what you both 
touched on and something that I've noticed works the best, I think, in, in for me currently is is on the, the practical side. Try to be a role model as much as you can. So I try to make sure to every now and then, even though I have tons of other things to do, make sure to implement some feature or fix a bug. And then make sure when I whenever I do, I make really sure to do it in a in a way where I, I include tests. I, I do the refactoring needed and Sometimes I try to bring in uh, other developers in the process as well. So we might do pair programming, or I, I include it as a pull request feedback. So you get a pull request. I'm I'm done with this feature, and then you, as a as a technical leader, can respond with, "Oh, yeah, but shouldn't we also change this thing?" And uh, you're sort of giving a practical example to them that it's okay for this to take a little bit longer if you can improve the code while doing so. Uh, because I, I've been doing a lot of convincing and preaching about uh, technical quality and sustainability over the years. Um, uh, I, I, I was doing uh, induction at King for a number of years. So I talked to all, all tech hires and, and talked about that. We want to do this in a sustainable way. And that that's good. And you can get some foundation with that. But it, it to me, I think it comes down to the day-to-day work that you feel that you you are allowed to take a little bit of extra time here and there to, to keep on improving it. And I think you both mentioned that. So I, I sir, there seems to be some common ground here. I think uh, that, that role model part uh, that you mentioned is really, really important. And it is not only non, not only about the technical technicalities and, you know, the practices in the technical part, but also in software skills as well. Like, uh, like, do you admit when you are wrong? Like, do you, how, how would you react to it? Like, uh, or how would you manage when, when there's a hot debate in the team? You know, if you, if you can show that, you know, there are certain ways that this can be handled very nicely and very smoothly without having a you know, drama in the team or something like that, then, then I think that can also contribute to a lot of things, you know, not only this, uh, the thing that we are talking about right now, but also, you know, many other things uh, in the team. So I just wanted to express that. Yeah. Um, and another thing related to soft skills, I really, uh, I really think that um, companies, they should invest a bit more in emotional intelligence. And, and uh, I, I don't know, there's so many ways of doing this, maybe uh, uh, emotional intelligence courses, but uh, but also the practicality of the, uh, uh, the topic. Uh, one thing that I would love to see in companies when it comes to values, uh, I, I would love to see empathy as a value in, in, in companies. I don't see that. I hope we can change it in the, in the future and then, and start to emphasize a bit more the idea that, as Asina mentioned, it, uh, we need soft skills. Sometimes uh, we, especially in in our world uh, where we are dealing most, uh, not, not only with programmers, but uh, our teams are, we, we're dealing with tech teams. Um, you, you, usually you work with a lot of smart people, um, but sometimes um, the emotional intelligence is lacking a little bit. Um, and maybe it's just because no one has ever mentioned that to them. Um, and then we have a, we all have our blind spots, and since they are blind spots, it's hard for us to, you know, put a finger on them. So we need someone else to put the finger there, and say, "Hey, you know, you have this." Oh, okay, it's a blind spot. 
Um, so we need we need to be more human uh, when it comes to all these discussions. Um, and one of one of the biggest human traits here should be empathy. And we need to uh, train people around it. And uh, as Per mentioned, uh, we need to be a role model there as well. No, I second that. And I think there's a very nice opportunity to do that in one-to-ones because I feel like it'd be a tall order if you could expect from everyone to call out behavior because I have that on my one-to-ones with my contractors. And if they are feeling like someone else isn't got the best soft skills, it's kind of almost, they're not incentivized to bring that up most of the cases, right? Uh, So yeah, you definitely need that to be from a top-down perspective, I feel. Uh, if you can help it anyway, like if you're managing someone directly and you spot it, and if you have no way of spotting it, maybe look at seeing if you can find a way, you know, show up uh, a bit more if it's practical. Uh, nice. Let's move on to the second question, which is from Sinner. Sinner, what is your question and the context behind it? Yeah. So my question is, are crunches inevitable? How would you avoid it? And when it happens, how would you manage it? So as a context, well, nobody really likes crunches, do they? I mean, uh, I'm not talking about uh, when people say they have good memories, you know, from crunch times. I think I think it can generate good memories, but uh, do you really want to be in a crunch right now? Uh, be, be that developer or, or a leader, you always try your best to avoid these situations, right? But then uh, this happens so many times anyways. So my question is that, first of all, is it completely inevitable? If not, how would you avoid it? And if so, how would you handle it? All right. I want to bring this to Per. Per, thoughts on this, especially with your experience. I feel like it's very specific because you just spoken that King is big on sustainability, right? Uh, yes. And for me, at least, uh, at King, it was outspoken that we didn't do crunches. Uh, that was almost true. Uh, so I didn't encounter it in my years there, but uh, that was depending on the teams that I was in at the moment. There were teams that did very limited crunches um so i I think to some point they succeeded there um to go to the the start of the question are crunches inevitable i don't think they are but i think it's hard to not come across some kind of stress to deliver at some point in a project so not inevitable but hard um and to avoid it i think that one of the main things for me is try to slice the project small do it in small incremental improvements if you can because the bigger project gets the harder it is to estimate and the the more will you be off in in your estimates so that means that you will need to rush more at the end if you need to make something some deadline um and the other part of it which is very much tied to it is scope i would say so for any kind of delivery that's really the only thing that you can sensibly change uh time is really really hard to change uh and what you try to do there is is do it with crunch meaning you work more hours uh i I think we all know what that means you make more mistakes you you make people tired uh they will produce less in the time after the crunch uh in the in today's situation where developers are hard to come by they might leave because they don't like crunching and they might be for another company but they don't do it um so that really leaves scope as the the variable for you. I mean, you can do some things with you can bring in some more people, and to some extent, if it's a paralyzable problem, that might help. But 
It also means increased communication, which takes more time. So that it's not really a thing you can play around with a lot. So again, it comes down to what are the features that you have to have in this release. Uh, and that then becomes largely a communication issue with with management and stakeholders in what really has to be in there. Uh, everything can't be the, the top priority. Uh, so then you need to choose. Uh, can you do a limited version of a feature for this release and then expand on it in, in the next one? Or can you roll out something um, in in almost in sort of a beta stage where it's not fully finished, but it, it has some benefits at least? Um, I think that's the, the thing I've seen work the best. Uh, so when I started working in the games industry, it was very much m more waterfall with long processes of figuring out the entire game. Uh, you spent a long time doing that, and then it's like, right, let's build it, and then you started doing that, and you had, a, you had some date you needed to hit, and that was hard, and we, we failed miserably. Uh, and then the whole Agile movement, I think, has really helped, to some extent at least, because you try to to make it smaller and more iterative and even more so in the mobile space, I think, because of how easy it is to do updates and how expected updates are. No one's really uh, surprised if you get um, update on your client uh, every week, even uh, in your phone, because it's just auto updates for most people. And if you're not doing that, then at least you're updating frequently most of the time. Uh, so it's it's a lot more accepted to do rolled out releases in, in slices and in iterative development. So that for me, I think is the biggest thing. If it happens, how do you manage it? Well, I think one of the things you need to do is try to put a stop date to the crunch. So you, you need to be able to see a light at the end of the tunnel because it is going to be rough. And if you know that, okay, we're doing this up until this cutoff date, it might be App Store closes for submission before Christmas, so you need to hit that, or you planned a big marketing campaign, and and it happens on this date, and it's all it's all been more or less set in stone. Uh, at least you know when it ends, and then you can work with that. And uh, I think it's best to try to get the team to buy in as much as possible. To so it's not something that's forced on people, but rather this is for the good of the the company and the product, and you will get some benefit out of it in the end it's it's for the the greater good for all of us if you can try to build that sense in somehow you have a lot better chances of, of uh, pulling through pairing that and in the end with some recuperation time afterwards because you are going to be tired you are going to be most likely in, in a not optimal mood and people need to sort of take a step back and and rest up after a crunch it's interesting it feels like you're borrowing from future time when you put it that way it's like and yeah, I think that could be some respite for some people if you make it actually like book in, you know, like you're not expected to, you expected to work less a bit after the crunch, like after the release. Yeah. Um, Edgar, thoughts on that? Like thoughts on, I guess, crunches? Because I think everyone's here had very different experiences. Yes. And uh, I think that in, in, a, in a way, Per uh, said most of what I, what I wanted to say in a bit and regarding this subject. But I like to touch the, this topic from a different perspective, just a, like a complementary uh, perspective. Um, I have two stories to tell. One is really short, um, but it, it was uh, uh, something that uh, I got like firsthand information from 
company, doesn't matter which company, that uh, in, in that company, um, it was part of the culture making the game teams to compete among them. So the thing is, um, we want to release games and then uh, the idea is that if I make the game teams to compete, so they will work like crazy because one of them wants to be the winner. And there was a chance of the other team being fired. So uh, yes, it's a true story. Um, so what do you think that will happen? <laughs> Naturally, people will start working 12, 14, 16 hours a day. We'll start working on weekends and all this stuff. Um, this is one, one of the, the, the things that I want to just say. And the other one uh, happened to me many years ago. I, I decided to accept a, a project um, and I worked, I was mostly, most of the time, the only programmer working on that project. It was, I won't, I, I won't say that it's, it's a big project. It was a big project for one person alone. Um, and then the deadline was, oh, you have two months. Um, and I knew that it, it wasn't possible, but I accepted anyway. And, and I will say, uh, I will explain why uh, later. But um, then I accepted the project and then I worked for three months. I couldn't in two months. So uh, I finished this in three months, working 12 to 14 hours every day, including weekends. Uh, so it could be pretty much a six months project. Uh, I, I, I kind of knew that. Now the question is, why did I do that? Um, I come from Brazil and uh, the, the gaming industry in Brazil is very different from Nordic countries. Um, things here are really, it, it feels like paradise compared to <laughs> what, what, what I faced in, in Brazil. I'm not sure things are better now there. Um, I hope so. Um, but the, the thing is, um, because of the situation of the gaming industry, sometimes you don't want to lose an opportunity, especially if you're working uh, mostly as a, um, a freelancer or as a contractor or uh, like, oh, I, I, I need this, this uh, uh, opportunity. And then you say, okay, I'll take it. And you know the consequences, but you do it anyway. And the, the consequence was that I, I was burned out for three months after that. Really, I couldn't think. I was in front of the computer and I would just like close my eyes. Naturally, I was trying to work and then I would sleep. It, it was ridiculous. Um, but um, why do I... So the other perspective that I wanted to bring to this is that sometimes uh, crunching can be part of a culture. It can be cultural. And this is dangerous. Um, working with games... We, we usually get into the gaming industry because we love games. We love making games. So it's a labor of love, right? And then sometimes people can capitalize on, on this love. And this, this is not good. So I, I just wanted to bring this, um, this other perspective that sometimes it's cultural and uh, it's, it's sometimes as experimentation, well, if we need to get a couple of days and work a bit more so we can deliver on time, that could happen. But then um, later you could have a, a retro and, and then ask, okay, so what can we do in the future to avoid this, right? There is one thing and I, I think it's it happens, it's okay. But when you work uh, in a place where crunching is part of the culture or in a, in a, in a 
maybe in a different country where the gaming industry works differently and implicitly you have crunching there um it, it's a bit harder to to uh, um avoid it so are crunches inevitable i would say that i i want to believe that yes uh, then i actually know that uh, that they can be avoided sorry the opposite um sometimes it's a really it's like this invisible force coming from somewhere and you don't know who or what is doing that but it's just like this invisible energy around you and it feels like it, it, it is what it is i'm not sure if you watch it there, there's this anime called new game have, have you seen it um it's it's um it's interesting it's funny. Uh, it, it's interesting. Uh, uh, I recommend you uh, watching it. But at the same time, um, it's related to the Japanese culture and, and the Japanese market. And the, the way they put it, you can see that they're talking about the labor of love. But at the same time, it's almost like they're glorifying crunching. So it, it's interesting. Um, it, it's like, oh, it is what it is. It's normal. Um, so, yeah, the, you can watch it. And, and and see for yourselves but um so yeah I, I just wanted to bring this that sometimes uh, it's it becomes part of the culture of a company and it, it can be really hard to avoid crunching in this sense i just uh you your contract uh, that you accepted even though you knew it was impossible made me think of a situation where uh the company i was at decided after negotiations that we they initially they thought that we don't have the time to deliver on this so we say no to the project and then the customer kept raising how much money they were willing to pay uh, until uh, my company eventually decided that the money is too good we need to take this on but then it was even less time because the negotiations had dragged out so uh, that was uh, crunch from day one basically uh, it was a short project it was i think it was a like three months as well. And I think the only thing that saved us that time, uh, which is part of why I take away from it, is we had an amazing uh, project manager who was able to negotiate really, really hard the priorities of the, the items in the backlog. So we could just, we were just working from the top down. And uh, basically we got as far as we did. We put in extra hours and we tried to do it as fast as possible. We also um, managed to to uh, get in a deal that we, we weren't really going to maintain this. It was going to be a delivery. And then if they wanted it maintained, that was another project. Uh, and that was to save everyone because they wanted the pro product finished in time and we wanted to deliver, but we couldn't do both. So cutting, cutting down scope to a really prioritized list and also making sure that we were allowed to cut sort of any corners, basically, saved us. Yeah, I think uh, both made very excellent points and also interesting uh, experiences share. I will try to explain my take as well. Well, I think we have crunch time and then we have crunch time. Like being uh, one year in a crunch time is not, I think that is, you know, avoidable. It's uh, completely avoidable. Uh, but, uh, you know, sometimes it comes, like, like when Pear said, that sometimes there comes a situation that you are stressed to deliver. Maybe you have some weeks of uh, these, uh, you know, crunch modes where you, you have to, you know, work more. And uh, uh, I think those those can happen. And you better you better have a plan for those situations. Um, because I think 
like many other things, like planning is prone to error, right? And uh, that should be expected in the team. Uh, that's what I'm thinking. It's like saying, are bugs inevitable? Well, yes, uh, bugs are inevitable. But uh, you prepare for it, right? You you define a recovery process to control the chaos it creates. Now, there is an ethical dilemma here about letting letting the business take a blow or making people people work over time, basically. Well, I think it comes down to your values as a company, really. Uh, you can take either side, but I think the most ethical and professional way would be to give people a choice and be sure to compensate that well for them. If people accept the deal, they will work over time and they, you know, choose to do do it themselves. But if they do not uh, accept it, you should be prepared to move the deadline. That's it. And that is the price the company should be willing to pay as a business because you should trust your team and understand that they did their best to avoid this situation, but it happened anyway, just like a glitch in the code. Poetic. Uh, Edgar, thoughts? Yeah. Um, I, I just wanted to mention that I, because I mentioned that maybe uh, sometimes it's cultural and I, I was thinking that most of the, the, the you know, the, the very first uh, gaming companies, they were like garage companies and, and they were just like a bunch of friends. Oh, let's, let's hang out together. Let's, let's make a game. So most, most of the, uh, the companies started like this. Um, and then they would just go there and they would spend the whole night, uh, uh, eating snacks and, and, and making jokes and coding and all this stuff. And it was perfect. And, and as I said, it's a labor of love, right? But then, uh, the gaming industry, um, went through this, uh, now it's, a it, it, we're more, um, we to, yes, we need to think more in terms of, uh, uh, as, as professionals, right? Um, so we, we are talking about an industry and I think it works if your company has three or five people. I mean, if it's an indie company or uh, probably this is the vibe that you will get. Everyone wants to make it work. So they're not thinking about, oh, I need to work eight hours a day. I should not work during the weekends. It's a labor of love after all. But once it grows, once you start think, well, we need more people to maintain this. We need to hire more people. Then the, you're, you're changing how the company uh, should work and then it, which means that the culture should change accordingly um so maybe I, i'm not sure if um, we still have this uh, uh it's more like the the remnants of this uh, this uh, garage culture <laughs> uh where everything was a labor of love and of course we love what we do but um as, as harry said uh, we are grown-ups now. We have families, right? We have other things to do. Um, maybe if you're around your 20s and maybe it's it's interesting um, for you personally working 10, 12 hours, I, I don't know. Um, because if you think it's a labor of love, but uh, over time you will realize that uh, it, it's not good. I mean, maybe it is when you, you're on your 20s and you have... I don't know the energy for that, uh, maybe. Um, but over time, you realize that uh, it, it's not sustainable. So again, um, it's the labor of law versus culture thing. There's actually some parallels here with recruitment because when I heard that story that you had, Edgar, and also Per, 
you both had a similar story where there was a time-sensitive opportunity where it was either crunch to get the opportunity or pass the opportunity. And in Per's example, it was possibly, I don't know if I misunderstood, but it was like, this money would be very good for the company. So like almost everyone would be like, yeah, let's take that deal. That's a deal. And in Edgar's story, there was a situation which they had the teams going against each other. And I heard on a podcast that that's quite common in the East, like in like China and as a development point of view, like that's just a thing. And then, yeah, if you have the fear of being fired, of course, you're going to do 14 hours a day. And I think the reason they can get away with that might be because there's just more talent to, I guess, burn through. Like, yes, if you did that in Nordics, probably wouldn't last. You probably run out of people quite quickly. Uh, you wouldn't have the best reputation. But if you have an endless pool of 20-year-old hungry people and you want to just get something out, maybe you can get away with that. Now, I think there's a lesson here. I don't know if I'm right with this, but like, it sounds like the fear of losing the job is, is a lot of fuel for a lot of people. But in one of those examples, there's a lot of buy-in because everyone's going to benefit. And I think when we saw layoffs this year, I wonder if there's... Because there's a lot of studios now which are pivoting to doing code development. And I've heard those stories where, you know, like they take on a project where they probably don't have the people for, but hey, we'll make it work, whether it be with crunching or try to hire people very quickly. And to me, that sort of opportunity thing isn't all bad. Like if, for example, a client says, hey, we need 10 developers, you bet you can bet that I'm going to be doing some extra time because that that's going to go away forever. And I would, I guess, borrow that time and rest in the future. But obviously, you can't do that six months in a row and hopefully you'd hire people before it gets that bad. So I think crunches are inevitable if you're the type of company that has um, deadlines or if people quit, that just happens. But as long as you reward it because you want people to, you know, like you as a company, I think that's, yeah, it just depends. Like, I think a crunch can be a good time if, Everyone's rewarded and it doesn't last forever. And I like what you said, Edgar. Like if there's five people, it's almost like built in. It's like it's expected. Like there's no one managing us here and we all want to get ahead. And if there's five people, hopefully everyone's got a skin in the game again, which changes everything. And I think it becomes an issue where you have a garage company that becomes a hundred employee company, but the founder's still there thinking it's a garage company and thinks everyone's going to have the same skin in the game. And that's if there's crunches there, then it's like, that's just, an issue right um but uh uh, thank you that's that's just a lot of cool thoughts lovely we'll move on to the final question uh which is with edgar edgar what is your question and the context behind it yes um my question is very similar to pairs but from a different point of view i would say um so the question is what can be done to ensure that a studio as a whole understands both the need to deliver fast and to ensure a sustainable internal process. And it's related to what, what we've been discussing so far. And I think it's related to my experience, uh, my previous experience, where um, you see uh, sometimes people, they're eager to make changes, to make things better. And for some reason, they, they can't. Uh, it feels like they're being hindered or they lose momentum, they lose the, the drive or the will to keep trying that. Um, and it can be disheartening um, when you see talented people, they want to change things. They, they have ideas to make things better. And for one reason or another, they, they cannot do it. So I, I think that's the, the, the context behind the question. All right. Sina, would you like to take this? Yeah, sure. So we have talking about the what 
can be done. I imagine that you know the first first question was about how can we do it, and this one is more more about what can be done to to uh, you know make sure that the team understands uh, why we need to deliver fast and uh, have sustainable uh, development. So I imagine the first thing would be to make make the mission and the values of the of the studio clear like by doing so we will have a common ground basically to to reference to whenever we want to discuss processes and stuff. for example you might you might say we want to have you know we want to develop casual games also we want to have work-life balance also we want to target this audience and so on and so forth so a set of you know, values and items that you can reference to. Then we need to make convincing arguments, like you know, like we discussed in the in the first question uh, about about why both sustainable development and fast delivery contribute contribute to to those uh, set of uh, values that we discussed. And I think at this point it should be understood uh, by individuals. You know, uh, because let, let's face it, of course, it, it, it just sounds reasonable on a general level. Like when, when we are talking right now, you know, about um, uh, these, these subjects, you know, or, or the, these attributes basically that uh, are good in, in the development process. But, but, you, but you have to convince all the team members, including more junior ones, in order to develop a, a studio-wise understanding. Basically, that's why you need to carefully work um, on on the basis of your reasoning when it comes to such matters. Um, now, now when the reasons are understood, the work is not finished. Of course, yeah, we would also have to design reasonable processes and pipelines to ensure what uh, what va- um, what we value and understood is basically uh, concrete in the team. You probably need to um, argue on. How the task will be processed, or you know, uh, so the team needs to agree on a workflow, which again can be translated to the understood basis. Maybe like, uh, maybe like, how do we plan plan the work which needs to be done? How how does how the task can be defined, or how it can be divided into subtasks? If we have many crafts contributing to the task, how how people are going to communicate with each other? Uh, to ensure a smooth delivery or define a um, review process to ensure sustainability uh, and so on and so forth. But I imagine all of these should should have a concrete logic behind it uh, so that you, you can always justify their existence. And on top of that, the team should always be flexible about changes as well uh, in the workflow because... Uh, it might it might easily happen that sometimes uh, something does does not work as you anticipated initially, and we need to adjust. Uh, I think following these principles will lead to a good result. Yes, like being very very clear of what we're doing and why we're doing it, and yeah, and I guess not having assumptions, especially for those junior coming in, because if you've had a way of working and it's worked for two years, and then you hire seven people, you can probably better that the way of working is not going to automatically be transferred right so making it very clear from a studio perspective sounds like it's quite important um per over to you thoughts on this yeah to me i read this question as much more about striking that 
balance that we have as the, the main topic here that if my question was more on how do you get a team to dare working on the tech debt and improvements this is about not getting stuck doing only things the the correct slow way but not forgetting to have a sense of urgency and that you actually de- do need to deliver. No one cares if you build a game with a perfect code base if you're so slow that you miss your opportunity. Then there is no game. Um, and you have a perfect game, but you have nothing to show for it, no money. And then you will be cancelled. Um, and I guess, I guess one one story I can think of uh, there is to try to build... If you build things, try to be as flexible uh, and build things uh, correct in terms of, uh, let's be a little bit more concrete here. So I go down to almost code level now. So a a game I was working on at a previous company, we we were building it and we were trying to do it sustainably, trying to make sure that everywhere we put in, these are the building blocks, uh, this system should communicate with that system, and uh, here is the the interface, the way we want it to be. But then we might uh, stub out an entire system and it just responds with hard-coded answers but it's in the right place and so you can then later you can change it to something else making it more flexible uh, a good uh, example would be um, like a feature toggle system to turn to turn things on and off over the air for instance which is really nice to have for a mobile game uh, i implemented that in the in the first version of it i had the interfaces i wanted to have but it always said yes so all features were toggled on but it was you, uh, the game was asking it in all the right places. So when it time came to actually start getting those things from the server, we could replace that uh, without any other parts of the game knowing. So that's taking it down, building it in a correct way, but not doing all the parts. And a key thing to that is to try to get the team to think of all code you write is subject to change. There is no such thing as a finished piece of code. It will never be finished. At some point, it will most likely change. Uh, something I come across quite a bit is, is developers going, oh, this is just the, the draft version, and then we'll do the finished one. But there is no such thing. This is the, the first version, and then there will be a second version, and at some point there's a f- third version. So getting into that mindset of everything can change, everything can be improved, uh, tries, I think, to stay away from the ivory towers of building the, the perfect game that never gets to market. Yeah, I, I agree with you both. Um, I just wanted to uh, mention one thing that um, thinking about the company as a whole, um, and we will get back to uh, mission, vision, values, uh, mostly. It's to me, it's, I've been saying this for so many years now that one way or another, everything boils down to communication and expectations. Um, If we can communicate among all levels inside the company in terms of management, leadership, production. And if we can have a good communication and if we can set clear expectations, um, things can be a bit better. <laughs> um, but it, it requires this, this uh, it's a, a two, uh, two-way, two-ways thing. Uh, so both management and production, uh, they should be willing to listen. And then, because um, sometimes we think that we understood. Someone comes to you and say A, and and you understand B, but in- internally you think that you understood A, and we both think that we're talking about the same thing. <laughs> 
but we are not. <laughs> and then when things go wrong, like, oh, what happened? And then someone says, A, A, A. And I say, B, 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 B. And like, why, why are you saying A? Why are you saying B? Um, so clear communication and then expectations um, helps. It, it goes a long way, <laughs> I would say. Um, and again, um, it's, um, it's all about thinking about the Agile Manifest. Again, that uh, historically the Agile Manifest uh, came up uh, because if you think of the waterfall process and all this stuff, it wasn't just the waterfall process. It's, it's just that everything in what in software engineering, it was just all about process. And there, there was no room for human beings there. Uh, so you can see the Agile Manifest kind of uh, rebelling against this kind of uh, thinking. And they say um, uh, people over process. So they're kind of trying to strike a balance there. And uh, yeah, the, 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 we should never forget the human side of all this. We are all humans. And sometimes it, it, it could just be that uh, you're having a really crappy week, right? And something happened in, in your personal life. And then we should just maybe remember that we are all humans and we say, okay, so just go there instead of saying, oh, you should be performing better. Okay, what's happening? Can I help? Is there anything I can do? And so on. So just remember that we are humans as well. So it's it's the balance that we've been discussing for some time now uh, during this hour. Um, but I, I really think that communication and expectations and ability to listen on both sides helps a lot. Uh, yeah, very much agree. And I, I think something that we, we can't forget as tech people is to be clear on that if you don't take time, put time into to tech quality and sustainable development, it there is a cost to that. I, I think it's it's so easy for us to get, you, you look at the, the numbers that uh, company management and performance directors and whatnot wave around when they say, oh, this this feature will make this much money. And they're always so certain about the amount of money it will make. But it's you need to remember, it's a guess. And and that's the upside. But then you need to remember that you are also doing an estimate on what the cost would be if you try to push the team to do this. And um, I, I think sometimes uh, tech people are more, they, they, they want more data behind the numbers. So you're not as likely to pull up a number and say, oh, but it will cost 300 thousand dollars because people will leave the company or you know or it will make uh, serious bugs because people are overworked it, you need to somehow communicate and and be clear on that it actually has a cost if you try to push people and or if you cut corners no, i think being data driven in a gaming studio i think by default especially when we're thinking about the garage studios that become big like sometimes that happens very late in the gaming studios life cycle where data gets infused like I know there's plenty of studios uh, where, like for example, people are working on features and they don't have direct access to the actual effect it has on the game, even a mobile game. Someone has that data, but there are some studios where every developer can go in and at least see the impact of their feature, which I think helps a lot when it comes to, if everyone understands what happens to the business sense, I feel like there's a lot of conversations that don't need to be had. But if that happens, if that conversation always has to happen from people who either aren't technical or people just from data or people from up top to say, hey, this is important because of blah, blah, blah. It's like, well, if we just had everyone plugged into value data, then 
I think a lot of this will be like, oh, I'll prioritize that because that will give the company this and which will make everyone happy, happy days. So I think especially if you want to deliver fast, if everyone can see like, this is like five times as priority as things usually are. It's like, okay, I'll, I'll deliver fast. I won't go and build um, the next Apple product and make it beautiful five years development kind of thing. And then you have the balance where if it's just chugging along, we want things built to scale because that will bite us in the ass in two years time. Uh, but we want to survive in two years time. So we still need to have some speed and then we're constantly having that conversation. Um, now, I think we covered a lot of ground today. Um, I'll conclude that here. We went a bit over, but that is fine. And I just want to say thank you to all of you for joining and everyone at home for listening. This has been the Evolution Exchange Gaming Podcast. I want to take this opportunity to thank Per, Sina and Edgar for providing their insights. And thank you again, people at home for listening. Um, Evolution Recruitment Gaming, we're going to be at Gamescom and likely in Stockholm in a couple months. So yeah, if you'd like to get involved in an upcoming podcast, I just want to chat. You can reach out to me on LinkedIn, Harry Foku, and I can give you some details on the events. Foku is spelled P-H-O-K-O-U. Thank you very much.